Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. Good to see you. So, what would your response be if I got up this morning and told you I have $10 million for each and every one of you today? Yeah? Pretty good response? Sorry, I don't. But let me ask you this. How many of you would go in tomorrow and turn your resignation into your job if that were true? Yeah? A lot of us? Why is that? Work can be frustrating. Can it be? It can be frustrating. In 1987, there was a study done that said 61% of people were happy with their job. Gallup did a study in 2014 and said 70% of Americans now dislike their job. So I'm guessing that probably about 7 out of 10 of you would resign tomorrow if you got $10 million today and quit what you're doing. Gallup also showed an interesting thing. He said, the more education you have, the more likely you are to not be happy at work. And they actually don't know, that the, the study didn't tell the, the reasons for that, but they conjectured that some of that might be due to the fact that we've seen an increase in people graduating with BAs and master's degrees and uh, getting hired into jobs that don't require a degree. So some of that might possibly be uh, our economy partly to blame. But I think there are at least three other factors that are kind of creating this perfect storm right now in our culture to cause us to be unhappy in our job. The first one is, is just this feeling of insignificance. We, we've kind of been raised to believe that part of the American dream is we've been encouraged to believe that you can do anything you want to do, and if you do it well, you can get into big money. And for most of us, that hasn't come true like we wanted it to be. And it leaves us feeling insignificant, like doing our jobs with not so much an attitude of passion about doing our jobs, but more of this kind of attitude of, I guess someone has to do it, right? So we go do it. And the second thing that I think is creating a perfect storm is, is we, we tend to face more job insecurity in our day, I think, than we have for a long time in American history. I mean, think about it. Years ago, when this culture was primarily agriculture, we woke up every day, you owned your land, and you got up and you, did, you knew what you were going to do that day. And there was a very direct, visible, almost daily benefit to the survival of your family, and, and that gave a lot of personal meaning attached to what you did. And then the Industrial Revolution comes along, and even in that, people had their jobs in their factories, and they generally didn't have to worry all that much about losing their jobs. A lot of them stayed in those jobs their whole life because they didn't have to worry about right-sizing businesses or shipping jobs overseas or someone younger and more tech-savvy coming along and taking your job or other market forces sweeping you away, right? But today there is much more insecurity in jobs. We, we have fewer and fewer people staying with a company for a long time or a job for a long time. And third, I think there's this pressure on us that's greater to work harder uh, and more intensely than it ever has been. I mean, studies show that we work longer now than we did 20 years ago. And, 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 and growing up, you could probably remember your parents coming home from work and 
They weren't on their iPhones answering text messages and emails all evening. They weren't sitting on their laptop working all evening. They got home, and they didn't even expect the phone to ring with anything related to work. They were home, right? And when your family went on vacation, you were actually on vacation. Work didn't follow you, right? Further, in 1964, the average CEO made 24 times what the average frontline worker makes in America today, and now they say the average CEO makes 300 times what the average frontline worker makes in their company. And, and I'm not here today to talk about the rightness or wrongness. I, I just want to highlight this aspect of that. What you find among those people in upper management today in a lot of those companies is they're making those really huge salaries, and it just feels like this huge pressure to be worth it. There's so much more pressure to feel worth getting paid that much. And conversely, the frontline worker continues to feel even greater pressure because they have to constantly impress people. Because if I ever want to move up the ladder, I have to constantly work really hard to impress because there's so little opportunity to move up and into the real money. So we often feel pressure to take these side jobs and just to make ends meet and live at a standard we're living. And in light of that, don't we find ourselves talking about work, even as Christians, oftentimes with really strong negative attitudes? We say things like what? Thank God it's Friday, right? We might even say, I can't wait to get out of this hellhole to a better job or even better yet, I can't wait to retire. We even create these funny little jingles, I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go, Right? And then we even have some great artists who come out with some really fantastic songs and enjoy this. Everybody's working for the weekend. Makes you want to get in your convertible on a nice sunny day and just go for a drive, doesn't it? It's just an awesome song with kind of bad theology, but it's still an awesome song. You know, we, uh, how do we solve this? How do we make work something more meaningful for all of us, and specifically for you? I mean, some of it's economy. Some of it is certainly our businesses could learn things and do some things better to make things better, and sure, that's all part of it. But Harvard psychologist and, and a TED Talk presenter, Sean Aker, once said, the primary long-term solution is to rewire your brain. In his 2011 TED Talk, which was seen by over 10 million, he noted that research says that 25% of your success and your happiness in work is predicted by your IQ. 75% of your success and happiness is in, predicted by your personal internal optimism, your social support, and your ability to see difficulty, stress, and challenge as an opportunity rather than a threat. And he goes on to say this. He says, what we're finding is it's not necessarily the reality that shapes us, but the lens through which your brain views the world that shapes your reality. And if we can change the lens, he says, not only can we change your happiness, we can change every single educational and business outcome at the same time. We're going to look today at some scripture that I think can be that lens change for each and every one of us today, to give us a perspective and a reason to look at our work differently so that it allows us to be re-energized, refreshed with new passion, new hope, new energy, regardless of what you're doing in life. 
So the verse we're going to start looking at, there's some verses immediately preceding what we're going to read in just a moment, where Paul has instructed older men to live worthy of respect, sound in love, and with endurance. And he switches and talks to the older women and says, I want you to find purpose in, in being examples of kindness and examples of a work ethic that transfers those same qualities to the younger generation. And he talks to younger men and says, be self-controlled, sound in speech, measure, have a measure of seriousness about your life, and be full of integrity in absolutely everything you do in your dealings with people. And it gives us a focus for what we do and how we work. And then Paul talks to slaves. And and you need to understand, some of the slaves were like we probably think about, but many of the slaves in his day in the Roman Empire were not in slavery like we think of slavery. They were actually had indentured themselves to serve someone for their entire life. It was like signing a, an employment contract to work for this company, this person for your entire life. In fact, some of those servants actually, when their master died, would actually take over that business. It was that kind of a world back then. So when Paul talks to slaves, he's actually talking to us very specifically about insights into how we think about work. So let's pick up the reading there. He says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And then in the next few verses that immediately following, Paul is going to dive in even more deeply to this perspective, this lens change that can help us find greater strength and energy and meaning in whatever we're doing. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you, he's telling Titus, who he's writing this to, who's a teacher. He's saying, Teach these things. These are really important. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. At one time, you too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Really long scripture, a lot in it. Would you just join me as we pray and ask God to help it come home for us? Lord, I pray that your spirit, as you've been here already and we just sense you as we worship and and, and sit here, Lord, would you come to each one of us now through this message and I pray especially for those who are discouraged in their work that you would come 
and that you would help us see things differently, see things the way you created us to see them with clarity and find a sense of energy and purpose and hope to go out this week and be different. Holy Spirit, come and do that for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. There is so much in this text, about, but, but we're going to spend all of our time looking at it only from the perspective of how it applies to our work. And we're going to ask, uh, to work our way through the text, we're going to basically ask three questions of the text. What kind of focus do we need uh, to re-energize our work lives? What does the text tell us about that focus? No matter what we do, even if it feels so ordinary, what is the focus that this text is trying to teach us? And how can we focus, uh, how can this focus be so hopeful and powerful and practical in relation to work? And then the third question, how can we apply that specifically to our work setting? So let's just look at the first question. What kind of focus is this saying we need to have to re-energize our work lives? See, Paul does something that really seems quite odd in this passage. The focus he gives us that provides the motivation and perspective that can breathe new life into our work is the second coming of Jesus. The literal second return of Jesus to come back at the end of time in all of his glory to establish his kingdom fully among us. The fulfillment of all the promises of God ushering in fully his kingdom, the rule of God, where all humanity will know with clarity and without excuse who he is and the ways of life. See, the focus of the second coming is actually really, really important. Not just here, but it's really important among New Testament scholars. It's the kind of, you know, the scholars out there who have the patience to count everything. I'm not one of those, so I just go to those guys. And and those scholars say that one in 13 verses in the New Testament, talk about the second coming of Jesus. It's that important. One of the reasons I think this is an odd focus for us is because when we think of someone who's preaching about the second coming of Jesus, the end times, what oftentimes comes to mind for us is TV preachers who are talking with inflamed voices about how much evil is coming together in the world and leading us to this Armageddon in life. And the general tone of the teaching around this is, is the world is going to hell in a handbasket and the message is more of impending doom than it is of any kind of hope. It's kind of this message that says things are just going to get worse and worse until Christ comes back and throws everyone who isn't a follower of his and sinning into the lake of fire and end it all, right? We either think of that or we tend to think of a street preacher we may have seen down by the shot or somewhere when we're downtown or whatever and talking about the end is near and, and you look at them and, 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 you, and you observe them and you go, well, they haven't showered for days and shaved for days and, it, and, and really what they communicate to you is, They've just given up and they're just waiting to escape this mess of life. They've already checked out. They're not even willing to take care of themselves. It's kind of what you walk away with, right? But the Bible speaks of the second coming not in a way that makes us fearful, not in a way that is intended to make us expect that things will progressively deteriorate and become unhopeful. No, in fact, if you look at the context of how the Bible speaks about the second coming over and over again, it, it leaves you that this is, this is intended to be something that powerfully motivates us to get passionate about living life right now, in the present, making a difference right now. So we get to our second question. How can that focus on the second coming be so hopeful and powerful and practical 
in relation to our work. You see, the second coming of Jesus is good news. In fact, it's great news to anyone whose life is filled with bad news. I mean, if you were a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt, or if you were a slave in the U.S. a couple centuries ago, or, or, or if you were a Christian today in Iran, or, or, or you're a woman living in a culture today where the husband can beat you and there's no legal recourse for you, or if you're a Christian living in sub-Saharan Africa where AIDS is decimating entire populations, or, or whether you're a follower of Jesus in the murder capital of the U.S. living on the south side of Chicago, you don't shrug with indifference when you hear about the second coming of Jesus being mentioned. Because you know that the coming of the king means the coming of the kingdom of God and the ways of that kingdom, which means justice is going to fill the entire earth and it taps into something deep within you. See, when we really understand the second coming of Jesus as Christians, it fills us with hope and it fills us with passion and purpose in everything we do because we long for Christ's appearing and we also, when we long for that, we long for the conditions that will accompany that. When Jesus will be clearly known, nobody will misunderstand who he is. Everybody will clearly know him and suffering and poverty and oppression and discrimination and disease of all forms of injustice will be brought to an end. And that is a motivating thought. So anyone who knows the truth, and that truth is, has got to be filled with eager motivation and hope to serve others, to show the compassion and love of the kingdom now, because Jesus not only promised that he would come again, but he also said that he was going to give us his spirit, and that what? His kingdom would be breaking in now among us. Now. It's not just a kingdom coming, it's a kingdom that's breaking in now. And when we, work and live, when we work and live in those principles of God in all of our life, we can expect health and his good and his good order to make our life and the life of people around us better. So let's examine the third question. How can we apply that specifically to our work setting? You see, the extent to which the kingdom comes now is significantly up to you and I. How well we learn to follow Jesus and how well we learn to love others like Jesus loves them. And the text tells us several things about what this hope in the coming of the kingdom does in our lives. In verse 12 it says, it makes you, it motivates you to live an upright life. Now that word upright, you could define that word as to live a just life. And what, what does it mean to live a just life? Is that primarily about our own personal morality and our own ethics? I mean, that's where a lot of us go, to our own private morality when we think about justice and living an upright life. It takes us to that thought. But the Bible's idea of justice is so much broader than that. There's an Old Testament scholar, Bruce, Bruce Waltke, who I think helps us really well in a way to understand that. He says this. He says in the Bible, the just are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. And the unjust are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. So one scripture that illustrates that among many, Proverbs 3.27, the Bible says this, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. A just and a righteous person lives with this constant awareness of the claims of the community upon you. And we go through life understanding that it is unjust to not help the poor when we can. It is unjust 
to take money, excessive money out of our business for ourselves when our employees are not paid well. It is unjust to not check on and care for elderly neighbors and widows and orphans who live next to us. It is unjust to watch someone being demeaned by other people's jokes at work or in school and not show compassion and support for them. It is unjust to withhold information that could benefit your business or the corporate good in order to protect your own interests at the expense of the corporate good, whether it's your work or anywhere else in life. See, justice turns us into being public-minded, passionate, and compassionate people. The second coming of Jesus, knowing and focusing on the truth of his coming, motivates us to want the kingdom of God to come to the greatest extent possible now, in all of our work, in all of the areas of our lives. So even though capitalism may allow it, we, it may be unjust to charge the huge markup that may be allowed by capitalism on a certain item if it could be reasonably delivered at a lesser price point because of the damage it does to inflation or keeping something good out of the reach of more people who would benefit. See, our text also helps us apply this coming of, the coming kingdom of God to our work by reminding us as well of God's authority and therefore instructing us to be respectful of authority, be respectful and gracious toward bosses and leaders. It says this, remind the people to be subject to rulers, and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. See, this hope totally changes the way we relate to authority, especially imperfect authority, which if you haven't realized is every single authority out there, right? So much of our work unhappiness is due to office politics, is it not? And relationships? People making assumptions and judging, people slandering others, people competing with others, people treating others without consideration or grace. And see, what this is telling us is unless we get this truth that the kingdom in full is still coming, it's not yet fully here, we'll never have that issue settled for us. So even though we are called and empowered by God to bring as much of his kingdom as possible to life here and now, it will never be perfect until Jesus comes again. So, so what does that do when your boss, for you when your boss acts sinfully or when your boss acts with injustice or, or just rudely? It does two things. It allows you to fix your eyes on two things. The first one is pretty simple. That's going to happen. We live in an imperfect world. It's going to happen. So it's not a surprise. It doesn't take you off guard. And the second one is this. One day God is going to set all things right. And hopefully that boss will be a follower of Jesus who will enjoy the benefits by then of everything being set right, just like I hope for things to be set right for me. See, we can all get angry and frustrated over injustice, and, and, and we will. But we don't have to act out our frustration because we know the imperfection of our world. And frankly, we know our own imperfection. We personally experience that grace of God coming to us. And we also know the coming perfection that will be there. And so we can still respond to those difficult situations with a sense of consideration, with a sense of gentleness, with a sense of seeking peace, 
We can avoid, therefore, the office gossip. We can avoid all the judging of motive that goes on in the break room or over the water cooler. We can, we can avoid all the, all the words and actions of that type, and instead we can proactively bring God's grace to whatever situation we're facing as we talk with our colleagues or we talk with our boss in that situation. There's another thing, too. Understanding the second coming, the coming of the kingdom, also helps us redefine failure. So often we get so frustrated with work. You work a year to cultivate a new business partnership or a new client or a new project, and, and you see it as your ticket to promotion. You see it as your ticket to greater income or financial security or recognition, and, and it falls apart. Maybe, who knows, for whatever reason makes it fall apart. If your eyes are still on the results in a broken world, work can make you feel so meaningless and frustrated. But if you see the coming kingdom, and that's your focus, you know God's kingdom is breaking in but not yet fully here, then it redefines how you think about failure emotionally and how you feel about it because you have confidence in something bigger than your current circumstance. Additionally, there's an idea in this whole focus on the second coming that is something that challenges our deeply held negative feelings that we talked about even up front, this idea that work is this necessary evil to get to what I really want. See, the second coming is actually a time in life when God's going to bring everything back to the way it was before sin entered the world, at the original creation. And so to understand about work, we need to actually go back to that pre-fall state in Genesis and look at that. And what we discover about God's ideas about work there is that work is something God created really, really good. How do we know this? We know it from several things. Work is part of the nature of God himself. God worked, and he's still working. He finds good and joy in that. So our view of work needs to start with the fact that God himself works and understanding how God views that. He worked to create everything that exists and work wasn't a necessary evil for him to get to rest and leisure, nor was work something that he tried to just get enough minions to work under him so that he could kick back and have leisure because they'd do all the work for him. If that's it, if that was the way God thought about work, then Genesis 1 would probably read like this. And I I, I don't know the author of this. It's unknown, so let me just read it. This would be how Genesis 1 would read if that were the case. In the beginning, it was 9 o'clock, so God had to go to work. He filled out a requisition to separate light from darkness. He considered making stars to beautify the night and planets to fill the skies, but he thought it sounded like too much work. And besides, thought God, that's not my job. So he decided to knock off early and call it a day, and he looked at what he had done and said, it'll have to do. (laughs) On the second day, God separated the waters from the dry land and made all the dry land flat, plain, and functional so the whole earth looked like Kansas. And he thought about making mountains and valleys and glaciers and jungles and forests, but he decided it wouldn't be worth the effort. And God looked at all he had done that day and said, it'll have to do. And God made a pigeon to fly in the air and a carp to swim in the waters and a cat to creep on the ground. And God thought about making millions of other species of all sizes, shapes, and colors, but he couldn't drum up any enthusiasm for any other animals. In fact, he wasn't too crazy about the cat. Besides, it was almost time for the late show, so God looked at all he had done and said, it'll have to do. And at the end of the week, God was seriously burned out. 
So he sighed a big sigh of relief and said, thank me, it's Friday. <laughs> no, that's not what God did. God created everything, and at every turn, his heart was full of creative fulfillment, of joy, recognizing the good work that he had accomplished each day. He created a good place with good things, everything we need, and not just to survive, but to thrive in this life. I mean, God worked. He created the heavens and the earth. He created the light and the darkness. He created the atmosphere. He separated water from dry land. And he said what? He said, it is good. He saw it. He pondered it. He enjoyed gazing upon what he had done. And he said, it is good. And he continued creating all kinds of vegetation, millions of varieties of trees and fruit and plants, and he enjoyed the abundant beauty and the creativity of all he had created, saying what? It'll have to do? No, it is good. And he went on and created animals and birds and every kind we know of, fish and sea, and he didn't do it in a skimpy manner. The text says the seas and the air were teeming with life. And God enjoyed the creativity and the variety and the beauty knowing he was supplying abundantly the needs of creation, calling it good. Work is good. And God loves abundance and prosperity and he intends that for us. God worked in creation and continues to work in holding it all together and in fact continues to work planning good works in advance for you to enjoy doing throughout your life. Second, going back to the creation, helps us also to see God's view of work by looking at his creation of you and I, humanity, created in his own image, given what he says is dominion over the earth. Our work is the honor of being stewards of all of creation, caring for creation, our, our needs and the needs of others, and tending the garden and working the soil. But because we don't always see work as an honor, we've actually created in our culture a war on work. And just for a moment, I want you to listen to Mike Rowe, the uh, famous actor from uh, Dirty Jobs, as he talks about this. We've declared war on work as a society, all of us. It's a civil war. It's a cold war, really. We didn't, we didn't set out to do it, and we didn't twist our mustache in some Machiavellian way, but we've done it. And we have waged this war on at least four fronts, certainly in Hollywood. The way we portray working people on TV, it's laughable. If there's a plumber, he's 300 pounds and he's got a giant butt crack, admit it. You've seen him all the time. That's what plumbers look like, right? Uh, We turn them into heroes or we turn them into punchlines. That's what TV does. We try hard on dirty jobs not to do that, which is why I do the work and I don't cheat. But we've waged this war on Madison Avenue. I mean, so many of the commercials that come out there in the way of a message, what's really being said? Your life would be better if you could work a little less, if you didn't have to work so hard, if you could get home a little earlier, if you could retire a little faster, if you could punch out a little sooner. It's all, it's all in there over and over again and again. Washington, I can't even begin to talk about the deals and policies in place that affect the bottom line reality of the available jobs, because I don't really know. I just know that that's a front in this war. And right here, guys, Silicon Valley. I mean, how many people have an iPhone on them right now? How many people have their Blackberries on? We're plugged in. We're connected. I would never suggest for a second 
that something bad has come out of the tech revolution. Good grief, not to this crowd. (laughs) But I would suggest that innovation without imitation is a complete waste of time. And nobody celebrates imitation the way Dirty Jobs guys No, it has to be done. Your iPhone without those people making the same interface, the same circuitry, the same board over and over, all that, you know, that's what makes it equally as possible as the genius that goes inside of it. So we've got this new toolbox, you know. Our tools today don't look like shovels and picks. They look like the stuff we walk around with. And so the collective effect of all of that has been this marginalization of lots and lots of jobs. Isn't that true? We create a pecking order in our value of jobs today in our culture, and it stems not from seeing work as sacred. It stems from seeing work as a curse and an evil that we just need to do so we can get to the place where life can be easier. See, our lack of a biblical perspective on the value of work and caring for the earth and society has led to economic problems for us today in America. It's led to poverty and unemployment in our economy today. But it's also bigger than that. Part of the problem also stems from a perspective of work that has been amplified the last decade or so, especially among millennials and uh, uh, significantly among Gen Xers, others as well. One of the things I love about working with millennials and Gen Xers is their drive, they have a drive and a passion to do something that makes a difference beyond just producing a product. So many of the millennials and Gen Xers that I've worked with that I know, I know far more people among that age group who are willing to take a gap year to serve in an impoverished area of the world. I know far more of them who are less driven by wealth and more driven by doing something meaningful and impact being made in life than other generations. And because of that, we've had the emergence of green companies. We've had the emergency of companies who build into their very DNA a percent of the profit going to charitable causes. And that is all amazingly fantastic. But even in all the good side of that, there's still a biblical problem of misunderstanding God's calling to work that creates a divide between socially responsible work and work that's deemed as merely for profit in our culture today. So a person studying engineering today, when I talk to them a lot of times, they say, I don't, I don't want to just build bridges. Uh, I want to do something that, that directly impacts the poor. Or an accountant says, I, I don't want to just go work to work for a big three accounting firm. I, I want to work for a nonprofit." Or a person doesn't feel like they're serving God well if they're a lawyer handling corporate tax issues. Rather, they'd rather just move on from that and try to be in full-time ministry in some way and doing those kinds of activities. And the deal is that when there aren't enough of those jobs in socially responsible areas, uh, people end up going and getting a job because we just need a job and they work for a large bank or they work for a distribution warehouse or work for a program, programming to sell another widget or, or build another strip mall. And we feel like those jobs are meaningless and not connected to God's purpose or any meaningful purpose at all. It's just selling, building, doing work to make a buck. And it's in this thinking that we fall into this idea that purposeful, really meaningful jobs have a pecking order. 
So to be a minister is much better and much more purposeful than to be an insurance salesman with Nationwide. To, be, uh, to work at Warm is much more purposeful and meaningful than to originate loans through Chase. To be a teacher is much more meaningful and impactful than, than to be a service technician. To build low-income housing is much more meaningful and important than to build office buildings. To counsel and help abused people recover is more meaningful than milking cows. Until you have no milk and cheese. Right? See, it isn't a biblical view at all. Whether it's Micro's war on work or the millennial's distorted view of, of, of meaningful work, both cause us to demean and devalue our work and get frustrated, wanting something more, being dissatisfied. See, God creates humanity, and he says he's given us all this beautiful work of all different kinds to do, to care for and steward all of creation, and some of those are dirty jobs. And God says it is all good. Then as we move from Genesis 1 and 2, where God talks about creation of, uh, of the earth and us and, and being created in his image, we get to chapter 3, and a problem comes up. Sin comes, and it changes things. And it makes us all want to work, uh, look at work as a curse. But it isn't. It isn't. All work is still good. We now have to work in a broken system that doesn't function as it's intended to function. But with sin, work is harder. It has frustration with it. But work is still very good. See, most of us as Christians seal off our faith from our work creating the secular Christian divide. But in God's economy, creating that spreadsheet that allows your company to continue to do business well and ensure the continued employment of people is as sacred and meaningful as me preaching this sermon to you today. I mean, taking that piece of wood and making a beautiful cabinet out of it that someone can store their stuff in is as sacred as praying for someone and seeing God miraculously heal them. Writing that line of code to prevent hacking, to keep people's finances safe in the bank that you work for is as sacred as writing a song of worship. That entrepreneur who takes a raw idea and turns it into uh, something that blesses people's lives as they buy the product and employs other people is as sacred as feeding the hungry who cannot supply their own need. The architect who plans a building or, or plans a city well helps bring peace and order and safety to life for many, and it's just as meaningful and sacred as the social worker who intervenes in families to prevent abuse. And even though there are going to be mistakes made, and fire may destroy that building you designed, businesses may fail, thieves may still steal your identity and take your money, accountants may cook the books and destroy what you worked for for years in life, there is hope something solid and reliable and sure that in all of our work, the work that lasts and the work that doesn't, you are serving God and you are doing good, bringing order to life, supplying needs and supplying jobs, doing such a good job that your company grows and hires people and eliminates poverty. See, whether you milk the milk, whether you deliver the milk, whether you use the milk to bake something with, or whether you simply enjoy eating cheese and crackers in the boardroom while you're making a sales presentation with a prospective client, every single thing we do is sacred, and work is sacred. 
See, when you walk in the ways of God, what you're doing You are bringing glimpses of his good kingdom, breaking into our reality. And even when things fall apart, it doesn't need to derail you because you ultimately know that kingdom will come and everything will be fully set right. Go ahead and come on up, worship team. God wants us to recover the sacredness of work in our lives. He wants us to see the beauty he created and worked for you to do in creating a good social order in providing for your needs and other people's needs, and creating work so people don't have to live in poverty. God wants you to enjoy that each day, even if you do the same thing over and over again, making the most out of every opportunity to care for the people you work for, to care for the people your company serves, to care for the processes that provide the product that allow your company to grow and care for more people. That is God's view of work. It is a gift from him, and your work is a sacred act of worship to him. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and continue to take these words. And for each of us who have struggled in our work, for each of us who have been dissatisfied in our work, for each of us who have wanted something more meaningful, Lord, I pray that you would come to each one of us and that you would fill us with your spirit You would help us to see the opportunities you're bringing us each day to enjoy serving and caring and loving on people, to enjoy creating an orderly world as you designed it to be. And Lord, as we do that, would you fill us with your spirit and allow us in our relationships to bring more than just a good product, but to bring the grace, the considerate, the kind, the forgiving, the patient nature of you to bear in all of our relationships, that we would bring good everywhere we go in all of the work of our hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.